Good morning, everybody. So we're in a new series. This is only the second week. Gary got it kicked off last week. And it's called Thriving in Babylon. And it's based on the life of Daniel. How many of you guys have read Daniel? How many of you have read him recently? Very good. It's really a cool book. It's only 12 chapters, so it really doesn't take a lot of time to, to look at it. It's kind of divided up the first six chapters. If, if you haven't read it recently, let me encourage you to at least go back and read the first six chapters. Because every chapter is another story. It's another story of something that happened. And there are lessons that we can learn from that. The last six chapters are about prophecies of things that were going to come along. But in the, and sometimes prophecies are difficult to read and to understand. But those first six chapters are going to give you a lot of ideas as to why we wanted to come to you with this lesson series about learning how to thrive in Babylon. If you read through that or if you're familiar with the story, you'll probably recognize some themes and some struggles that Daniel encountered that are very similar to the same kind of opposition that we face today here in America as Christians. Did you catch on to that? Have you seen that? See, living in Babylon was different, but it wasn't all that different to the kind of things that you're going to experience trying to follow Jesus here and now. And the choice that's really out in front of us is thriving versus just surviving. Last week, Gary talked about the difference between those two. How many of you guys know a Christian that is, that is thriving in their Christianity? By a show of hands, do you know somebody that is actually thriving? Yeah, you know them. You know that they exist. How many of you would like to thrive as a Christian? Amazingly, there are more hands on that question that went up than on the ones that went, went down, which tells me something that I think I already knew. A lot of times as Christians, we feel like we're just surviving. We don't always feel like we're thriving. Sometimes our feelings lie to us and we're doing better than we think we are, but a lot of times we are just surviving. And see, the problem with, with just surviving is when you're thriving, you don't worry about failing, do you? You don't worry about giving up because you're thriving. Everything is good. It's rich. It's deep. But when you're just surviving, it feels like failure is just that far away. How many Christians come to church on Sunday mornings and they don't know why they're coming anymore? Why do I keep doing this? And they worry, will I just quit and give up? Well, we don't have to, we don't have to just survive. I don't think God wants us to just survive. He wants us to thrive. But there are some things that we're going to have to take responsibility for if we're going to learn how to thrive. And I think that we can actually pick up a few of these things from the life of Daniel. See, Daniel didn't just survive in Babylon. He actually thrived there. Now, why do you think he thrived there? Do you agree with me that he thrived? Okay, a lot of heads are nodding yes. I think he thrived. Most of you think he thrived. Why do we think he thrived? Was it because he was granted wealth, power, and privilege? He certainly was. He came to the top of the ladder. He had a lot of wealth, power, and privilege. Is that what it means to thrive? Is that why he was thriving in Babylon? Well, the answer is, depends on how you look at it. See, in our culture, and unfortunately still in the church, Wealth, power, and privilege are often thought to be the earmarks of someone who's thriving, right? I mean, we can be honest about this, can't we? 
I mean, we live in America. Wealth, power, and privilege. That's how you know if you're, if you're thriving. That's how we've been conditioned to look at it. That's what we've been conditioned to see and oftentimes to pursue. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus look at wealth, power, and privilege that way? As marks of success and thriving? Most of you are familiar enough with Jesus' teachings to know that no, he did not look at those as signs of someone who's thriving. In fact, the way that Jesus looked at wealth, power, and privilege, he seemed to see them as more liabilities than assets. Is that how you look at it? Is that how I look at it? See, I think that the difference between just surviving and thriving is going to come down to how you look at things. Have you ever looked at something in a certain way and because of that, things went tragically wrong? Ever had that experience? Am I the only one who's had that experience? Well, I can tell you a story and it's not my story. It's my sister's story. And so if she listens to this tape, I'm in real trouble come the holidays. But I'm going to take a risk on that. Whenever I was a kid, my mom and dad loved dogs. And they tried their hand at breeding different dogs at different times. How many of you are familiar with Pomeranians? Yeah, my mom and dad thought this would be the coolest breed for them to breed. And they didn't want to just breed standard Pomeranians. They were breeding for these little bitty tiny guys. Have you seen them? They're like two, three, five pounds maybe tops when they're fully grown. Well, they decided they had a couple they called Jack and Jill. They had a, had a litter. And in a litter of those size dogs, two pups is about as many as you're going to get, right? On one occasion, they had two pups. And it was really remarkable because one was just as snow white as could be. All you could see on this little pup was two little black eyes and a black nose. Kind of remind you of Tribbles on, on Star Trek. Just little fuzzy puff balls. You might pick one up and powder your face with. The other one was as black as coal. I mean, they were just startling. Cutest little things in the world. And my sister, who was six years younger than me, she was just, she's just a kid, but she had a habit at night. Before she would go to bed, she'd go grab up these pups. She'd reach over into the kennel. She'd pick one up, kiss it on the head, put it down, grab the other one, kiss it on the head, put it down, go to bed. And I was watching this little ritual one night. I watched her go over and she grabs the little white one. She picks it up, kiss, kisses it on the head, and the little puppy's squirming and just loving it, you know, doing his little dance. Puts it down, grabs the little black one, gives it a big old kiss. And from this end, a head pokes up and goes, what are you doing? <laughs> this is new. This is not good. My sister looked at this thing so wrong, and it, she ended up kissing a dog in a place no one should ever want to kiss a dog. It happens. We can look at things in a certain way and it causes tragic results. To press the point a little bit further, I want to show you some slides that I came up with. And I think most of you probably know these slides. Have you seen this one before? How many of you have seen it before? Most of you. What is this a picture of? A woman. What kind of woman? An old woman. How many people see a young woman? Can, how many people can see just an old woman? One. A couple. How many people can just see a young woman? How many can see both? Put both hands up. It depends on how you look at it, right? And you can train your eyes. Here's one of the things. Those of you that, that only see one or the other, once you see the old woman, and if I had a, a pointer here, I'd point her out to you. 
Once you see the old woman, woman, you'll be able to see her from now on. Those that only see the old woman, if I show you with a pointer how where the young woman is, you'll be able to see it from now on. Now, before we go to this next slide, so Pat, before you press slide, press go, I'm going to show you a slide of another girl. And if you've seen this slide before, don't give it away. Don't say anything. Okay, you ready? Go ahead, Pat, show them. Can you see the woman in this? I should say the girl in this. You, you, you can't see a girl in this? Look really hard. She's there. Okay, let me help you out. Pat, go to the next slide. It's a cow, but a cow is a girl. And I told you there was a girl in there, right? One of the problems with seeing things the way that they really are is whenever you're looking for the wrong thing in the picture. I set you up on purpose because that's going to play a big part in why we sometimes choose to survive instead of thrive. Sometimes we're looking for the wrong thing in the picture. But now let me show you something else that's really cool. The first time I saw this picture was probably about 20 years ago. Roll back the slides again, Pat. Go backwards. How many of you can still see the cow? Here's the thing about training your eyes. Once you see it, you'll always be able to see this, this again. See, 20 years ago, I couldn't have told you any better than most of you that there was a cow in that picture. But now, 20 years later, I see that. I immediately see the cow. Because my eyes have been trained to look at it a different way. When we look at Daniel through this series, what I want to suggest to you, go forward again, Pat. What I want to suggest to you that we have the opportunity to do from Daniel's life is to let God show us a line around the world that we live in, around our reality, and learn how to see things in a different way. And learning how to see things in this different way will allow us to not just survive, but to thrive. And most of you said you'd like to learn how to thrive as being a Christian. It's a wonderful opportunity. I've got just a few things that I can share with you that I've learned from Daniel. And we'll take a look at those this morning, but really the whole series is going to give us an opportunity to learn how to look at things in a way that makes things much better. So Daniel thrived in Babylon because he was a realist. What is a realist? Well, the thing it is not, what a realist is not is a pessimist. However, I've never yet known a pessimist who didn't claim that he was a realist. Pessimists, you guys know pessimists? Can you think of one? <laughs> you know a couple of them? What is the hallmark of a pessimist? They can always tell you exactly what's wrong. They see the flaw in everything. Try to plan an event with them. They'll tell you why it doesn't work. They will. They're always the ones who will find a flaw with whatever you want to do. Pessimists are not realistic because all they see is the problems. They are denying a certain portion of reality when all they see is the problems. Optimists are not realists either for the same kind of reason. They don't see a problem with anything. Everything's going to turn out great and rosy and cool, right? Well, that's not true either. So what is a realist? Here's the definition I found online. A realist is someone who can look at things as they are in life. As they are. Not the way they want them to be, not the way they should be, not the way they used to be, but the way they are, and deal with them in a practical manner. You see, they, they're, they're willing to see both 
the good and the bad. And so they see things as they really are. Daniel, I think the reason that he thrived, one of the reasons he thrived was because he was a realist. He saw things as they really were. So how did Daniel choose to look at things? got three things I'll show you that I can find in his life. You might find some more, but here's three that I think will help us get that line about around the reality that we live in so that we can learn to thrive instead of just survive. The first one that I get from Daniel is he saw that his life wasn't going to go the way that he wanted. Now, this may seem like a really obvious point, but how many people do you know who fail, even at my age, to grasp the fact that life is not going to go the way they want? They think that that it should turn out this way. I should have this. I should be there. I should do that. And they just fail to grab onto the reality that it's not going to go the way that I want it to. Those people are usually pretty miserable too, aren't they? They're always fighting to try to get their way. Daniel looked at himself and he said, well, I wasn't raised in Babylon. I wasn't always a slave. But whatever it was that I thought I was going to be and whatever I thought I was going to do or have in this world before I became a slave and got shipped away from home and landed here in Babylon. That's all gone. What I'm going to be now is going to be something different. See, he saw that he was in exile. He knew that he was never going to fit into the culture of Babylon perfectly. He was still a slave. That didn't mean that there weren't going to be good days. That didn't mean that there weren't going to be good things. He did rise to the top of the ladder, and he did have wealth and power and privilege. But as far as we know, he was probably a eunuch, so he probably never had a sex life. He probably never had a family or children or any of the comforts that come with that kind of a life. He was obviously very allegiant to God, and yet his temple had been destroyed, and he was prevented from going back there. And that's a huge thing for a Jewish kid of this age, to have a temple and to be cut off from it. Here's the key to Daniel being able to see himself this way. He had humility. Let me just suggest to you that you're going to find it incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to thrive as a Christian if you don't have genuine humility. It's one of the biggest keys that I can give you. One that I'm still grappling with myself. Learning how to accept things as they really are and understanding that I'm not going to get my way. If I was going to have my way, I'd be watching the Cubs play baseball this afternoon. It ain't happening. (laughs) We may go into another 100-year drought. I don't know. Mm. Reruns, Bob is suggesting. Yes, actually, I've got got the World Series tape from 2016, and I I frequently go back and watch Game 7. Anyway, how did Daniel... Yeah, some of us live in the past. That's okay. How did Daniel uh, look at things? Well, he saw that one. He saw that things weren't going to go the way he wanted. Number two, he saw reality... A little different than some of us. He saw reality as having two parts, not just one. He saw reality as having two parts. Having heaven and earth. How did he come to look at reality as having two parts? Well, Daniel grew up being taught the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. And he spent time, obviously, in the temple. And his experience in both with the Word of God and with going to his version of church in the temple had trained his eyes to look at the world very differently. In fact, the very first sentence in the Bible says, in the beginning, God did what? 
Come on, you know this. It's not a trick question. He created the what? Heaven and earth. Now, I got to tell you, growing up, most of my life, I've been a Christian for a long time now, a little over 40 years. Most of my, at that time, I was taught and just understood that heaven was God's space. Well, the Jews didn't look at it like that. They looked at it, I mean, yes, they, they saw it as God's space, but they didn't see it as always existing. They saw it as something that God created. They looked at heaven and earth as two sides of the same coin. Reality consisted of both of them. In fact, that, that Hebrew word back in Genesis 1 for heavens could be translated as the sky that you see, could be translated as the universe beyond, and could be translated as God's space, where he dwells. They used the same word to describe all those things. Why didn't they come up with specific words for all three like we do? Because they didn't see it as something out far beyond the stars. They didn't see heaven so far away that it can't be reached, that it's way, 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 way far away. They saw it as something that God created as a part of creation, just as real and present as the world that we're in right now. Two sides of the same coin. So they didn't have to come up with a different word to describe all three of these. Daniel had spent time in the temple. And if you know much about the temple and the tabernacle before it, the temple and the tabernacle were laid out and even decorated in such a way as to say, this is reality. That's, that's what the whole design and purpose was for. Well, there's more detail to it than that. But this is one of the big features. Is it was to say, this is how the universe and all that is creation, reality works. The outermost court was to give us the idea of the world that we live in. Good old terra firma. The next court, the holies, would have given you the idea of the sky and the universe and the stars. But the most important and sacred place was in the back of the temple. It was called the Holy of Holies. That was God's space. And if you know your Old Testament, you know that God filled that place and he met with a high priest once a year. The problem was the guy couldn't stay there. He could only come in under certain tight rules and then he had to leave. But do you know what hung between the Holy of Holies and the Holies, the rest of the temple? What was it? It was a curtain or a veil Extra points, bonus points here. Do you know what was embroidered on that veil? Cherubim. Why would they embroider cherubim on that veil? To take your mind back to Genesis 3, whenever Adam and Eve were exiled out of Eden. What did God post at the gate to Eden? Cherubim. To say, no, you can't come back here. And there's a lot we can say about this. There's a lot of meat in here. But here's the big point. Just the fact that there, there was a veil that prevented anybody from seeing what was back there didn't mean that there wasn't something back there. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. God's space is around us. Now, they didn't have this language, so they wouldn't have used this. They wouldn't have said what I'm about to say. But their mindset would have been the same. Heaven is all around us like a different dimension. It can be in the same place at the same time. Now, why am I getting into all this nerdy technical stuff? Because how you look at reality is going to determine the difference between surviving and thriving in your faith. 
If you see heaven as someplace far, far, far away, where God dwells on a throne, way out there somewhere, you're going to live differently than if you understand that heaven is all around us and directing the affairs on this earth right now in real time through those that are faithful to God. How many times have you forgotten that heaven is real and right here and found yourself kissing the wrong end of a puppy? It can happen. It does happen. And that's not thriving. Daniel learned how to see the veil. And the reality is it's got two parts. It's not just earth. It's not just the stuff you can see. It's also heaven. It's the stuff you can't see. And here's the thing about reality. Let me just read what I wrote so I don't say it the wrong way. Living like one or the other of these two isn't real or isn't really relevant is living in denial of reality. Let me say that again because this really is important. Living like one or the other of these, heaven or earth, heaven or earth, isn't real or isn't relevant is living in denial of reality. And how many people do you know that do well when they live in denial of reality? You don't thrive whenever you can't face up to reality. And most people that live in denial of reality, denying the reality of, of, of heaven, do so either because they just can't see it. Earlier in the teacher's class, whenever I showed the, uh, the picture of the old woman, I had people initially that said, I can't see anything in this picture. People that, that don't understand what we're talking about, who aren't Christians yet, they're looking at the same thing we're looking at and they don't see it. They don't get it. But you can learn to see it through faith. But that doesn't mean that you'll always be able to see it because sometimes you can lose sight of it. How many of us on a day-to-day -day basis lose sight of the reality of heaven? Whenever you're having your next big moral failure, just ask yourself if you're thinking about God being with you. Whenever you're getting into the next big argument with your husband or your wife, ask yourself, did I just lose sight? of reality the next time that I'm fighting for my way regardless of whether my motives are good or not but when I'm just demanding my rights have you lost sight of heaven Daniel learned to keep it in view third thing that he saw is he saw that he was created to actually work for heaven here on earth how important is it for you to know in your job who it is you're actually working for You ever got in trouble because you know, somebody else that was working for the boss told you to do something and the boss comes in and says, why'd you do that? Because so-and-so told me to? Yeah, well, you don't work for so-and-so. You work for me. What did I tell you? How many times has that happened to us as Christians? We forget who we're working for. So you're not working for the elders here. You're not working for the preacher here. You're working for somebody else. Daniel realized that he was working for heaven while he's here on this earth. In fact... Remember, he's talking to King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, 25. He made this statement. He says that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men. Nebuchadnezzar had not come to a full appreciation of this reality at this point in his life. And by the way, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't thriving. He had all the marbles. And he was not thriving. If you read about his life, he was miserable. 
And I don't think that's mistakable. Daniel said, look, the reality is God controls what's, on, on what's happening here on this earth. So Daniel realized that he was working for heaven while he's here on earth. That shaped the way that he saw things. And because of that, Daniel thrived. He was faithful to God, and God used him in a very big way. And he helped a lot of other people see what was in that picture that wasn't so obvious before. Okay, so I mentioned Nebuchadnezzar. He's kind of like the counterpart, at least in, in the first four chapters, four or five chapters of Daniel. He's kind of like Daniel's counterpart in these stories. How did Nebuchadnezzar look at things? He obviously didn't look at the world or reality the way that Daniel did. How did he look at them? Well, I got three things. Just like I had three for Daniel, I got three for him. I'll be a little quicker with these three. The first thing that Nebuchadnezzar looked at and saw was he looked out for number one. Don't you get that from him looking at his life? He looked out for himself. Nebuchadnezzar would have been a great American. Seriously, he would have been a wonderful American. He would have fit in here really well. Nebuchadnezzar, he demanded his rights. What did Daniel do with his rights? He surrendered them. Do you see how totally opposite this worldview is? Well, there's more about Nebuchadnezzar. What's the second thing I see about him? Nebuchadnezzar kept losing sight of God's authority. It wasn't like he never saw it. He saw it on a couple of different occasions. I mean, remember he's ready to kill every one of his, his wise guys? He's, he's, he's ordered the execution of all of these, this whole class of people because nobody can interpret his dream. Daniel comes in and says, well, it's not me that can interpret it, but God told me what to tell you about it. And what does Nebuchadnezzar say? Wow, there's a real God. Check it out. You'll find that in verse 47 of chapter 2. He caught a glimpse of God's authority and of reality. But what happens? He lost sight of it. Because he goes through the same thing again with the fiery furnace, right? And what does he say after the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? He makes the same kind of profession that God is God. He's the one who's really in charge. He seems like he gets it. He seems like he sees it. But what happens? He loses sight of it again, doesn't he? He has another dream. And Daniel tells him what it means and says, you know, you can take a different course. It doesn't have to turn out this bad. And it seems like maybe he agrees with Daniel at the moment, but he loses sight of it again and he loses his mind. He was surviving the whole time, but he came dangerously close to not even doing that for a long period in his life. And then you end up, chapter 5, with him saying, look, or chapter 4, he says, nope, God is really real. We do not know how Nebuchadnezzar finished his life because the next chapter, chapter 5, starts with his son. And it went tragically bad with him. But we know that he made these professions of seeing God every now and then, and yet he would forget. He would lose sight of it. And ultimately, God had to humiliate him because he refused to humble himself. The first thing that we looked at that Daniel saw that was different than other people and different than, than Nebuchadnezzar was he had humility. He did not demand his rights. Nebuchadnezzar had no humility. 
He definitely demanded his rights. He wanted the things to go the way that he wanted them to go. Maybe for good reasons. But he had no humility. And here's something I found in my own personal life, and many of you can back this up. When we decide or choose not to humble ourselves, God will humiliate us. It really is just that simple. Humble or be humiliated. Choose for yourself. Do you want to thrive or just survive? Okay, so uh, the third thing that we get from Nebuchadnezzar was he was only invested in the world he could see. He was only invested in the world he could see. Archaeology proves that this guy was a builder. They keep uncovering things that were built in Babylon that are amazing. It was on a scale that even today is sort of shocking. And a lot of what he built was religious. He built these ziggurats and put temples on the top of them. He was a religious guy. What I'm telling you is Nebuchadnezzar went to church as he understood it. Nebuchadnezzar went to church. But here's the thing, what he did with church because of the way that he looked at things. He worshipped the God that he thought would give him the things that he wanted in this world. See how badly he was looking at things compared to Daniel? And by the way, how many Christians come to churches on Sunday mornings because they think Jesus will give them what they want? They're not so much interested in working for heaven here on earth, but they sure want a better marriage. Because you live in a bad marriage and you're miserable. Or they want a better job, so their prayer requests are always about gimme, gimme, gimme. That is more like surviving as a Christian than thriving as a Christian. Which one are you more like, Daniel or Nebuchadnezzar? Here's a couple quick questions to help you see where you might be on the chart. What we're looking at here is, are you a realist? How do you actually look at some of these things? First one is, is how do you look at this world? How do you look at this world? Are you caught up in it? Nebuchadnezzar only invested in the world that he could see. I've heard Christians say for years, I'll be satisfied with just a hut in heaven. And what I notice is I've never found anybody who's ever said that to me who lived in a hut here in America. They've invested in nice houses. They claim they'll be satisfied in heaven in the world to come with just a shack. Well, regardless of all that could be said about that, how much are they investing in this world versus the one that's coming? If you've got a nice house here and you're only aiming for a shack there, you might be investing in the wrong reality. It's a different way of looking at things. If you're looking at this world as something for you to thrive in, you're probably looking at it the wrong way. How do you look at heaven? Do you look at a heaven as a place that you hope to go when you die? Or do you see it as all around you now, directing the affairs of this earth through its citizens? How do you look at Jesus? Is he supposed to work for you or are you supposed to work for him? The way you answer these questions will tell you something about how you're looking at reality, how you're looking at the world, how you're looking at yourself. And it will also tell you something about whether or not you're thriving or surviving. And I know a lot of people, and maybe some of you in this, here this morning, 
Christianity has left a bad taste in your mouth. It promised big and delivered little. I'd like to suggest to you that if Christianity is leaving a bad taste in your mouth, you're kissing the wrong end of the puppy. I think you're looking at it wrong. And maybe something in the difference between you and Daniel might be at play here. So what are some things that I can do to make sure that I'm starting to look at things the right way? i got three of those for you. The first one is, I'm looking at things the right way when I see Jesus getting his way is more important than me getting my way. I'm looking at things the right way whenever I see Jesus getting his way is more important than me getting my way. How many people will disagree with me on that this morning? Nobody. Now, how many of you in your last fight were thinking about Jesus getting his way? To you married people in particular, the last fight that you had with your husband or your wife, was it about Jesus getting his way? Or were you fighting about which one of you would get your way? And in that moment, did you feel like you were thriving in your Christianity or were you just surviving? Maybe you even felt like your marriage was just barely surviving. Maybe you lost so much sight of Jesus getting his way that you were ready to kill the marriage and to walk out. You didn't even want to survive anymore. It doesn't have to be that way. You can thrive, but it's going to start with having the humility, and that's what it takes to see this one. You're not going to see this at all if you don't take some humility, which means you're going to have to dump the pride. You're going to have to lose your agenda. You know what, a, you know what repentance means, don't you? It means surrender your agenda and embrace Jesus's. I could flesh that out with more of a discussion, but this, we don't have that kind of time this morning. But you can check me out on that. If you're a Christian, you're supposed to look at everything different. And you'll start to thrive whenever you truly get it in your heart that Jesus getting his way is more important than me getting my way. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Who's in charge? If all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him, then that means he is in charge. Whether you submit to him or not, he's still in charge. It's just that you can choose to be obedient or rebellious. You will not thrive being rebellious. And when you're rebellious, you are not going to enjoy Christianity. I'm really trying to appeal to you guys to find... You, most of you put your hands up, yes, I'd like to thrive. I'm trying to help you. I'm, I'm not saying I'm a perfect Christian, but I enjoy being a Christian. And I have a lot, just like a lot of you can say, I have a lot of stripes on my back from the punishment that I've taken for being a Christian. I wear those scars, just like many of you do. But I still enjoy Christianity. Because I see that. I'll show you this verse too. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. I've seen fights as an elder. I've seen fights in churches, between churches. I've seen fights in marriages and between members of the same church. In every case, it's because someone didn't want to give up their own way. 
we really start to thrive and we're looking at things the right way when we see Jesus getting his way is more important than me getting my way. It is absolutely fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. You cannot see this. You cannot do this if you don't embrace humility and empty yourself. Second thing, I'm looking at things the right way when I see behind the veil. When I see behind the veil. I told you about how the temple was constructed and there was a veil. You couldn't see beyond it. didn't mean God wasn't behind it. didn't mean that that space wasn't real, that there was nothing that was there. And how many times we lose sight of the fact that just because we don't see heaven doesn't mean that we should lose sight of it. That happened to Nebuchadnezzar all the time. I want to show you this verse. 2 Corinthians 3.16, Paul makes this statement. He says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And he's talking about unfairness. He's talking about something slightly different than what I'm talking about. But the truth is equally there. When you turn to the Lord, you start to see things that you couldn't see before. You cannot turn to the Lord just one time in your life prior to baptism. And, and expect to thrive. Whenever you're faced with that problem, with that heartache, with that disappointment, are you going to turn to what the world says about pursuing wealth, power, and privilege? Or are you going to turn to the Lord? Because if, things are, if, if you don't really see what's going on, if you can't make out these pictures of the world, you need to turn to the Lord and ask Him to take away the veil and open your eyes to see some things the way that they really are. In Ephesians 1, verse 18 through 19, Paul said it this way, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Folks, you can't see that. You can't see these three things if you're not turning to the Lord. You can't turn to the Lord without humility and giving up your way. But when you turn to him, he will remove the veil and you will see some things that will change your life. One of the things that I absolutely, it breaks my heart is when I talk to a Christian and I ask them, where's your hope? And they say, I have none. Have you talked to Christians who have no hope? And they don't have a clue what you're talking about when you talk about the hope that Paul's talking about. You know, you can take almost anything away from somebody. They can, they can survive, maybe even thrive. You take their hope and they'll die. This is why I think Paul starts that letter to Ephesians with this prayer. It's a battle to, to see reality, to see what it is and not to let go of it. And it makes all the difference between surviving and thriving. By the way, shameless plug, we're going to be... Uh, Starting next month, I'm going to be teaching a class on Ephesians. Sunday mornings at 9, from 9 to 9.30, just like we did with the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to be doing that, and I'm telling you, there's a lot of really helpful, good stuff in that class, so I'd love to have as many people as possible come join us for it, and I will bring donuts. So, and you can bring something, too, if you'd like. Okay, the last thing that I want to show you this morning, the last way that I can know that I'm looking at things the right way, is whenever I see that working for heaven here on earth is what it means to be thriving. I'm looking at the right things whenever I see that working for heaven here on earth is what it means to be thriving. Having wealth, power, and privilege is not what it means to be thriving. 
doing occasional things for heaven while here on earth is not what it means to be thriving. Whatever job you hold to support yourself, if you're a Christian, you should not look at that as who you are. That's simply what you do to support yourself. Jobs come and go, but you have been given a vocation. A vocation is a bigger thing. You've been made part of the new creation, a new kind of human, which means that whatever you do to bring in a paycheck is just what you do to support yourself. Who you really work for is the king. You follow me on that? Okay, well, what does that mean? Daniel 6, 4. I want to show you something unique about Daniel that I found. You know that there's nothing, uh, nothing bad ever said about Daniel in the Bible. That's rare. That's really rare. I wish that the same thing could be said of me. Yeah, there's nothing bad about that guy. No, nah, there's a whole list of things wrong with me. But here's, here's where Daniel was. They, they, some guys were trying to lay a trap for him, and they, they were saying, how are we going to stumble him? And this is what they say about him. So they could not find any corruption in him because he was trustworthy. He could be trusted, and he was neither negligent nor corrupt. It's not complicated, is it? You want to thrive? First of all, be, be trustworthy. Be someone God can trust to do what he's asked you to do, what he's shown you to do. You don't have to be any more complicated. There's a lot to know about being a Christian that I haven't uncovered yet and that you haven't uncovered yet. He hasn't asked us to understand every mystery in the Bible, but he's shown each one of us something. Take the next step that you know that you're supposed to do. Can you be trusted with that? Because what I found, and I think the Bible backs this up, is if I won't do what I already know to do, he's not going to show me a heck of a lot more. Why would he show me something else if I'm not willing to act on what he's given me? So first of all, we have to be trustworthy. Secondly, we need to be not corrupt. You know what that word means. I don't have to explain that one, right? And not negligent. You know what that means, right? Okay. Last verse I want to show you this morning. It comes out of Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. Jesus summed up the whole Bible this way. Everything that God wants from us. He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. He summed up this entire library of books in just that statement. Talk about a short sermon. That wasn't even a minute, and he just explained the entire Bible. But he follows it up. There is one more other thing that, that he wants us to be responsible for, and that's you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love is what we're here to do. You want to thrive in your Christianity? Stop thinking about what you get out of it and start thinking about and looking for what you're supposed to bring to it, what you're supposed to do. You'll find yourself miserable trying to get, 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 get. You'll find yourself at peace with God within yourself, learning to try and be trustworthy and not to be negligent, not to be corrupt. We're supposed to love God. Are you negligent in loving God? Are you corrupt in, in loving God? How can you be corrupt in loving God or loving people? By doing things so that you'll get the applause. Jesus had to deal with that. He, check out Matthew 6. He dealt with that a lot. There were people who were very much looked at as religious leaders, and their motivation behind what they did was so that they would be seen by men 
so that they would be noticed. That is being corrupt. A way of being negligent is knowing the good you ought to do and not doing it. Loving God, loving people. So hopefully I've given you this morning some, some options here and some things. I know this is a lot to digest. I, I never bring these really simple lessons, do I? I always give you a lot to chew on and things that you're going to have to think about. But what I'm really trying to do is in a short amount of time set you on a course to looking for the way to see how God draws that line around that cow. And what I'm really concerned about the most is how many of you are kissing the wrong end of something because you're looking at it wrong and it's left you with this bitter, ugly taste in your mouth and you're just not thriving. You're not finding the joy. You're not finding the hope, the peace, and all those good things that Paul wanted to enlighten us to. There is so much to be found in worshiping Jesus. There is nothing better in this world available to us than that. Does it come with complications and setbacks and problems? Of course. That doesn't mean you're not thriving. And it really just comes down to how you choose to look at things. Hopefully I've given you a couple of ways there, and I'm going to end this up with a prayer. And I'm going to do like Paul did. I'm going to ask God to open our eyes, open the eyes of our heart, and help us to start seeing things a different way. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, thank you again for, for bringing us here uh, to look at your word. Father, I believe as a people, as a body, as a congregation of your church, that we really do want to do more than just survive. We don't want to just keep going to church and get a check mark in the box next to our name. Uh, Father, we want to actually thrive. But we want to thrive not just for our pleasure, but mostly for your pleasure. At the same time, Father, I pray that you'll help us to find all the pleasure that comes from working for a generous God, a generous Savior. Uh, you do spoil us in so many ways. You do take care of us in so many ways. You've, you've lavished these riches on us. So, Father, I pray that you'll change the way we look at things so that we can know the hope that you called us to and that we can know your riches and we can come to know you and that we can be lights in a dark world. We can be salt to this earth. Father, I pray that you'll help anybody here this morning struggling with wanting to give up, with being frustrated and stuck like they're just hanging on. Father, I pray that you'll help them to realize that there is something better that's available. Help them to change the way they're looking at things and to see reality like you see it, to see themselves like you see them. Father, help us to, to work for you uh, and, and to enjoy all the privileges that come with that. We love you, Father, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.